<laughs> Who's going first here? You all, you all know, you, you know, you're, you, you all know uh, Rick Smith, and, and, and we're all familiar with his book and his an incredible career as a journalist, um, a chronicler of, you know, I was just sitting there when you said the idea of, of, of the head of the Federal Reserve being shouted down. You know something about power in Washington, right? This is this is this is your beat for a long time, and, and the Russians. But his work, "Who Stole the American Dream?" last year, and it has become his uh, uh, his new life's vocation. And I just want to say one thing that uh, is not in the biographical part about having you come here and visit us. Um, you could be retired right now. You could be sitting. You could be sitting in in Palm Springs. I I looked up the year of your birth before this happened, and uh, uh, and and you're not um, because of this inequality. Because of what happened to the American dream, you're you're keeping you know the schedule of a rock band um, and, and 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 playing venues large and small to yeah. to be. Um, I don't know if people got a chance to see a TED talk that. Uh, uh, Rick Ridgely did, but um, he's gone from being a reporter and a journalist to an agitator. Um, and I think we should yeah. all think about this as a, uh, as a next career, <laughs> as he has. Thank you. That's kind of you, Bill. Um, uh, you're right. Um, I've, I've slipped across a line here, uh, and I've joined you all. Um, and, and it's because of the, the passion and the concern about the country that you all share. I, I was really pleased, uh, Regina, when you started out with the stars going up here, because in the year or so since I was last here, I really moved myself from Who Stole the American Dream to Reclaim the American Dream. And I'm about to launch a website called Reclaim the American Dream, and I'm going to ask you all if you will share your emails so I can put you on the list and alert you uh, as soon as that goes live. Uh, and uh, I'm doing that for two reasons. One is, in going around and talking around the country, um, uh, with the exception of a few audiences, I mostly get peppered at the end of in the question and answer period with what can we do uh, what's happening? Isn't it impossible? The lobbies are so strong. The Koch brothers are so strong. It's pretty hopeless and so forth. And I'm trying to answer these verbally, and I can't keep up with them. So I finally <laughs> decided I need to put more of the answers on a website uh, in an organized way. And let me just tell you what, it, what, what it's about and then share a little bit with you. Uh, on every single, we've got six issues up there, and I plan to go to at least a dozen or 15. And my idea is not to organize a new organization. My idea is to operate as a journalist and open up a gateway to people who are not engaged in reform or have just started to put their toes in the water uh, and give them a way, an entry point, uh, to begin to find out about the issues and sort out which issues matter most to them along the line of your stars up there. Uh, and so the issue, and both political and economic reform issues, the six issues that we're going to offer right at the start are the push to amend the Constitution and roll back Citizens United, uh, the push for disclosure of all political spending, not just campaign spending, not just candidate spending, but all political spending, all election year spending, um, and uh, 
public financing of campaigns or tax credits or tax deductions or matching grants such as you all have here in your Los Angeles City elections. So those are the three political issues, the three economic issues you'll be interested in are student debt, minimum wage, and inclusive capitalism. That is going back to the notion of whether or not there's another way to manage American corporations you have in this state, a public benefit law which legalizes and authorizes, although in fact the old laws don't rule out uh, corporate leadership, paying attention to social issues, relationships with their community, concern for the environment, and responsibility towards their workers, and so forth. But uh, So what we've done is, on each one of those issues, there's an issue brief. What's the issue? How to get Citizens United? What was the decision? What's been the impact of the decision? Just kind of a reporter's report. And then the next thing there is is a progress report. Where does it stand around the nation? I'm going to share some numbers with you, which, which have surprised me. Uh, but what's happened in what states? Or sometimes it's not states or cities. Sometimes it's different groups of people. What have they done? And then finally, my thought is most people don't believe success is possible. So every single one of these issues has a success story, which is reported as if it was written for the LA Times or the New York Times and so forth. And I did them. And I had a hell of a lot of fun doing the, uh, the reporting for those. Uh, and you'll get, you'll get a, a real kick out of them, I think. And then in addition, each one of them has a list of readings. So you can go get additional readings. And each one of them has a list of national organizations that are engaged on the issue concern, so you can get in touch with them. So the idea is to just open it up and give people a start. So I hope that'll work. But let me just tell you what, I, what I've been experiencing. <coughs> and, and one of the reasons why I think this website is important and, and the kind of conversation you're having here today, we're having here today is important. Uh, I think basically the mainstream media has failed to do a good job of talking about what I'm talking about. Uh, success uh, on, on uh, some of these issues comes piecemeal. It comes in this state or this city at one time or another. Uh, and the, the, the media is absolutely Washington-focused. I cannot imagine how boring it would be to go back and do some of the jobs I used to have in Washington now because it's the same story, literally the same story. You must be writing the same Boehner quotes, the same White House responses, the same Mitch McConnell. Literally, you must be writing almost the same words in a week in and week out. And believe me, that's boring. Uh, but they're transfixed by that. And one of the things I'm going to try to do, not only launching the website and making it available to you and uh, and people that, that you're reaching out to, is I'm going to try to see if I can get a few of my friends in the press to actually let me come on their programs, not to give me FaceTime, but to get in front of people that, in fact, there's something going on in this country outside of Washington that matters. Now, what do I mean? 28 states have higher minimum wages than the federal minimum wage. More than 60% of the American workforce is now working under minimum wage laws that are higher than the federal minimum wage. So when you're Republican or you're conservative or you're anti-government or you're anti-Obama uh, friends say to you, you know, Obama's walking around Congress, the states are walking around Congress, okay? It's very important to know that. 28 states. The first state to enact a public benefit law was Maryland in 2010. There are now 27 states that have enacted public benefit laws. And that's significant. I don't know if you noticed, but on Bloomberg today, a California corporation named Etsy just went and had an IPO on Wall Street. So we're not only doing it here and doing it among sort of the friendly and the faithful and 
but they're going to go see if they can float it on Wall Street. So, I mean, that's a, that's a significant and important development. Public financing of campaigns. Most people have forgotten that for six presidential elections, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George Herbert Walker Bush, Bill Clinton, not only all those presidents, but all the people who ran in those presidential campaigns in the primary and in the general election all had publicly financed matching dollar campaigns. So public financing was deeply rooted in the American political system. It began to break down with Bush and then finally with, with Obama. But the rule over the last 30 or 40 years actually has been public funding. Now, I assume when I started this project, public funding was dead. It turns out there are 25 states that have some form of public funding in their campaigns. Now, most of them are pretty paltry. Most of them are do it for judicial candidates or maybe the top two or three officers in their state, the governor, lieutenant governor, and, and maybe attorney general or something like that. But there are four or five states that have really significant and robust public funding campaigns, and it changes the political culture in the campaign, in the campaign and in the elections, and the whole political culture of, of, the, camp, of, the, of the state. Uh, Maine, Connecticut, Minnesota, None of those may be too much of a surprise, but the other surprise is Arizona has, has such a campaign. And if the Supreme Court doesn't keep ruining uh, these systems, uh, there may be some others that will join them. I mean, th that's significant. We have 16 states uh, that have taken some action. California is way out front on this with Vermont having actually called for, do you all know what an Article 5 convention is? The Article 5 of the Constitution provides for the calling of, for a constitutional amendment in two ways. The way that's happened all along, which is for Congress to vote, two-thirds of each House vote, and then send it to the states for ratification. But in fact, the Constitution provides for constitutional amendment from the bottom up. If enough states, and it's a high threshold, three-quarters of the states have to call for a constitutional convention in order to turn that around. California and Vermont have officially called for that, but there are another 14 states that in one way or another have done that. And I've just been up in New Hampshire. There's a hell of a battle going on in New Hampshire right now about whether or not to pass a resolution. Uh, and, and it's wonderful. Um, in 66 New Hampshire towns, they have circulated petitions and they have passed town votes to amend the Constitution and roll back Citizens United. I don't think people know that. They don't think have, people have any grasp that that kind of thing is going on. Um, you know, uh, now we get to a lot of the stars up there refer to public education. You all, once again, are probably well ahead of, well, you're certainly well ahead of most of the country. I don't know if you're absolutely leading in the whole idea of either free or reduced cost of community college, at least in the first couple of years. Uh, but Tennessee has now adopted it. Believe it or not, Texas is looking at having free tuition. So my point is there are things happening and moving in this, in, in this country that people are unaware of. I want to share just a couple of personal experiences. Um, I happen to be in Washington State because uh, I have a summer home uh, on the islands north of Seattle and children and grandchildren who live in Seattle. So I was particularly interested in the minimum wage votes in Seattle, but particularly in the town of SeaTac. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know what SeaTac is. It stands for Seattle-Tacoma. It is the airport. And there's actually a town around the airport, and the town's name is SeaTac. It is a town of about 21,000 people. And a lot of them are old-fashioned, blue-collar, uh, traditional industrial workers. 
but a lot of the others are newcomers to America. They come from Ethiopia and Somalia very heavily, uh, certainly from the Ukraine, from Russia, uh, from Bosnia, all over the world, but very heavily East African. And these are people who are, these are the people who are doing the baggage loading, the cabin cleaning, the pushing of the wheelchairs, believe it or not, the loading of the fuel onto the aircraft. None of them are covered under union contracts. None of them can, can uh, join uh, unions, and I don't know if you know, you probably do, because you've had a very interesting battle about the airport workers in, in Los Angeles. Uh, in fact, you've been once again in front there, but you've now fallen a little bit behind, but you'll leap ahead again. Um, but these people are governed by the Railway Act, which says that you can't organize in one location. You have to organize nationwide, because this is a transportation, and so pilots fly all over, that makes sense. Stewardesses fly all over, that makes sense. Mechanics doesn't quite make as much sense. But if you're a baggage handler, you're not going anywhere but to the airport and home, to the airport. So they can't uh, legally uh, organize. Um, and it's rental car drivers, and it's the, the people who move the rental cars around in the lots. So this is, this is a town which has got uh, several thousand of those workers. And these are people new to America who have no idea about American politics. Uh, they've come from societies that, uh, that it's risky to raise your head uh, and you'll get in trouble, you get thrown in jail. Well, maybe you won't get thrown in jail in America, but it's risky to get out front. And some of the people in the unions, in, and by the way, the unions themselves have been at war with each other. The SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, uh, Unite Here, the Teamsters, uh, the United Food and Commercial Workers, they've all got their own pieces of the pie out at the airport, and they all have been fighting each other for a long time. Finally, they decided, let's give it up. Well, let's work together. And they tried organizing, and they said, that's not going to happen, so let's try bargaining with the airlines. Alaska Airlines, the main airline up there. Let's try bargaining with the airlines where the airlines refuse. The airlines have done what you know has been done all through our economy. They contracted out all these jobs. They fired all the old baggage handlers who used to be covered by unions, by the way, and used to have pretty good wages. They fired them all, and then they contracted out the same work. And now if you go try to negotiate with the airline, they say, not our job, not our business. It's the subcontractors. You try to negotiate with them, and they're very, very difficult people. And in the end, they decided they had to go the political route to try to raise the minimum wage. Well, it's astonishing. Uh, the, the difficulties they had to overcome, uh, the Muslims basically didn't trust the American unions. Uh, the imams uh, were wary of them. Uh, and, and the East Africans were worried about getting involved. And some of the traditional union guys wanted to kind of go muscle in. Fortunately, there were a few people who said, slow down. They began to work through the Christian ministers in downtown Seattle. And then, lo and behold, there's a minister, a woman minister at a church not very far from SeaTac, and she says, all of a sudden, I began to see people in workers' uniforms showing up in my food bank line after work. She said, that's when I realized we had a problem. Here were people working full-time, and they, in order to feed their families, they had to go to a church food bank. She said, we set that up for the homeless. We set that up for the absolute poverty. And we got people who are working 30, 40 hours a week, and they're showing up there. So she begins to get organized. And then there's a group of, of Muslim uh, rental car uh, mechanics and 
they call them drivers. They drive the, the, the cars around within the lots. After we turn them in, they drive them to be washed and serviced and so forth. They were Muslim, and they had been praying five times a day uh, behind their, uh, where they worked at, at Hertz and at Avis. And for some reason or other, the Hertz managers decided to ban them from being able to pray five times a day and said, if you're going to pray, you're going to have to clock out. You have to take the time off and then clock back in. You know? And uh, they began to walk off the job, uh, and, the, and the management fired some of them. And what created a bond between the unions uh, and, the, uh, and the Muslim uh, leaders and the Muslim community was the Teamsters said, we're going to back these people. And this is an issue that matters. Now, remember, the Teamsters are representing all the Avis employees, and those who are behind the counter are not Muslim. Most of them look like us, right? Uh, and they're white or they're African-American, but they certainly don't. It may be Latino, but they're certainly not Muslim. Uh, and, the, and the Muslim workers and the imams said, if the union cares about this, they care about our values and our lives and not just about getting membership and not just about getting higher wages. And that began the process. They organized in a town of 21,000, where there are probably maximum of 10,000 10, voters, in the last month before the election, they registered 1,000 new voters. And they won the ballot by 37 votes. <laughs> I mean, just a phenomenal political effort, pulling, pulling things together. So I, and this is a story that, that is going to be told uh, with names and quotes and all that kind of stuff on the website. But, but the important thing is the notion that some labor leaders are beginning to understand they've got to begin to organize and operate in a different way. They've got to look for community partnerships rather than just traditional labor demands. That's a very important change that's starting to happen. I've run into it in other places, but none so dramatic as, uh, as at SeaTac. And then I'm going to jump across the country and ask you whether or not you happen to see the story last summer about Market Basket. Does that name mean anything to you? I mean, Market Basket is an old-fashioned New England supermarket chain organized and set up by a Greek couple who came to America. And we get down to the second and third generation, and we have two cousins now who are operating the thing. And there's one guy named Artie T. Demoulis, and he's been the CEO. And this guy is an old-fashioned, I put this up on my star, I'm for old-fashioned, stakeholder, worker-friendly, inclusive CEOs. That's the part of the American dream that, that I think if we could get back that most people don't think about that would be very, very important. That's what kind of guy this was. And his cousin and his side of the family called Arnie Demoulis, very confusing for anybody who's trying to follow the story, um, uh, said, you're not taking enough money out of the company and paying it to us, the family owners. We want to take more money out. Um, uh, uh, Artie T. DeMoulis had a 15% profit-sharing bonus every year, and he wanted to bump it up to 20% for rank-and-file employees, and lots of other things like that. And uh, so he got fired by the cousins who wanted to make more money. What's really interesting was the workers started to walk off the job. These are non-unionized workers. They started to walk off the job because they were upset that the kind of family-feeling uh, company that they'd been in was being destroyed for the sake of higher profit for the owners. And then customers started staying away from the stores. And then mayors of towns began making statements advocating 
consumer boycotts. And there was a big, long struggle. RDT didn't have enough money to buy the other part of the family out. And believe it or not, some people in Wall Street actually came up with a billion and a half dollars, which they made available to RDT. And he came back and he brought back, he came back, bought out the other part of the, the firm. Uh, and of course, amazing publicity for the company. I mean, it suddenly had, was flooded with brand new customers. But my point is, and, and it was very interesting to see some of the messages on the internet. But one of them said, uh, CEOs and one percenters, we're stakeholders, take notice. You're accountable to us. That's the message of the story. My point is, there, when there are moments and opportunities, people in America are beginning to respond and pushing back. And my hope uh, is that we're on the lip of a new progressive era, that this may be a time which is similar to the time that led to the women's suffrage vote, that led to the 16th Amendment, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and trust busting and so forth. I think there are things happening, but one of the things we need to do is exactly what Regina was talking about before. We need to reach out to each other. And I was thinking as I was walking around the, the halls just before coming here, what's the wackiest idea that I could toss out to you all <laughs> about who you might connect with? I think organizations like yours that bring together nonprofits ought to try sitting down. Well, I could say with your local chamber of commerce, I'm interested in the conference board because believe it or not, the conference board the organization of the CEOs of the biggest companies in America are actually holding seminars and roundtables. I've been to them. I've been involved with them. I couldn't believe they invited me. Um, <laughs> but they, but they, on why people don't trust corporations anymore. Now, they're edging into it on little issues like CEO pay, which is not a little issue, but it's nowhere near the <laughs> biggest. It, but it's yeah. nowhere near the central issue. I mean, the central issue is much more about... about uh, uh, about profit sharing and about about more inclusive capitalism. But I think that we ought to begin to be more daring uh, uh, about reaching across divides. And I think that one of the most important things I learned in my travels since seeing you last, I learned in Tallahassee, Florida, a very unlikely place, uh, where they have a, an organization called the Village Square. And the whole point of the Village Square is to create a space where people of very differing points of view, not you all are, probably have differences, but you're, we're all of a fairly common viewpoint, but where people of different points of view can come together and talk about and thrash out the difficult problems that face our uh, country and our communities and our states without the partisan polemics and recriminations uh, that have now become typical. The kind of comment that you quoted this, uh, just as you introduced it, the idea that, that Janet Yellen should be shouted down by, by somebody in the Congress saying, you have no right to talk about an issue which is obviously central to, uh, uh, to her function. It, it's just insane. We've got to recreate public space where we're talking to people who don't think like us, but we're trying to whack away at the problems. Um, I had my own village square yesterday. Um, I've been traveling around a bit, and uh, I've come here directly from Palm Springs, um, which you all must know is a watering hole of the wealthy. Uh, and I had uh, an audience of about 150, maybe 200 people yesterday, and I said to Regina, come in, 
I don't think there was a person in the room, or a couple, there's a lot of married couples, but I don't think there was a couple in the room with net worth under $25 million, and I will bet you there probably weren't more than one or two under $100 million. This was not the 1%. I was talking to the top 0.1%. Uh, and I talked about who stole the American dream, and I did not say to them directly, you are the robbers, but they got the message. <laughs> <laughs> but they got the message. I did not varnish what I had to say at all. I wasn't hostile, but I was direct. But I said, we need to talk to each other. Uh, our country is in deep, deep trouble. Uh, I believe we're in risk of going the way of Rome. And, and if we don't uh, turn around, talk to each other, and address things, um, we're going to go down. And your children and my children and our grandchildren are going to be in disastrously worse shape than we are. And we're in a country now that can't deal with any major issue. We can't deal with immigration. We can't deal with climate change. We can't deal with national debt. We can't deal with student debt. We can't deal as a nation with any major issue because our political system is broken. We've got to get together. We've got to do something. And we've got to fix it. And I got, I got some pretty prickly questions in response to that. Um, and I also got some people saying, you know, is it too late and so forth. Let me leave you with one last story. Marlon told me I had to tell stories today. He's very, very big into storytelling. So let me share with you one of the most interesting stories I've heard in my travels. And it has to do with this question, is it too late? Can we do anything about it? Uh, are we just looking at sort of our society in decline? And by the way, there's some opinion polls out now that show 60% of the American public believes the United States is in decline. This is not just a bad rating for Obama and Congress and the press and the lawyers and, and, and the priests and so forth. This is the system is headed downhill. There's a famous story that, that isn't very well known uh, in this country about Alfred Nobel, the fellow who set up all the prizes we pay attention to every spring. He had a brother, whose name I can't remember, who had another career in another field. And uh, they were both getting older, and the brother died. And there were a bunch of obituaries, and one of the obituaries in Francois in Paris wrote that the merchant of death, and you all know that Nobel was in the business of arms and weapons dealing and dynamite and so forth, merchant of death dies. And he gets sent to a friend of Nobel's up in Norway, and the friend uh, takes it to, to Nobel, and Nobel sees it, and he said, oh my God. They've written my obituary and with my brother's name. That's me. It's my story. He said, this is one of the worst things that's ever happened to me. And his friend said, no, it's not. It's one of the best things that's ever happened to you because now you can rewrite your own obituary. So now we can rewrite our own obituary. Thanks. <laughs>